30% of Irish travellers don't live beyond 60. Welcome to this BMJ podcast. This is one of our podcasts where we're finding out from the people who are really making patient and public partnership happen out there. This week, we're hearing from a group of people that are surprisingly large across the country, but often overlooked by society and formal healthcare services. This is the Gypsy and Traveller community. And I'm lucky enough to be joined today by two people who've been working hard in East Sussex to engage the healthcare system in providing care and support for people who identify as gypsies or travellers. I'm Anya Diong, patient editor here at the BMJ. Um, I'm Samson Rattigan. I'm from the traveller community. I also work for Friends, Families and Travellers as an engagement worker. Hi, I'm Michelle Gavin and I'm Projects Manager for Friends, Families and Travellers and we're a leading charity that works on behalf of all Gypsy, Roma and Travellers regardless of ethnicity, culture or background. It's probably just worth mentioning here that Friends, Family and Travellers is a member of the Voluntary Community Social Enterprise Sector Health and Wellbeing Alliance, which is a partnership between the voluntary sector and the health and care system to provide a voice and improve the health and wellbeing for all communities. I think it'd be really helpful to start off with just to get a bit more of a, an overview from your perspective um, about the Gypsy and Traveller community, um, the size of it in the UK and, and what that community Tell us a bit more about the community from, from both your perspectives. Okay, well, Gypsy and Traveller community are two distinct different communities, actually. So you have Gypsy or Romany Gypsy, English Gypsy, uh, and then you have the Traveller community, which is predominantly Irish travellers, although you will get some Scottish travellers and Welsh travellers. So it's all very much a, a different groupings. But uh, the significance between a Gypsy and a Traveller is that they're different specific ethnic groups. We're also talking about a group of people that are new travellers as well who suffer probably the same discrimination and health outcomes as ethnic travellers and I think the ethnic travellers and gypsies that we're talking about, um, it's across the board whether they're on the side of the road or in bricks and mortar as well so there's some real interesting things around mental health with the communities. Um, one of the things about the community I think you should look at is we're looking about one in every 200 as a gypsy or traveller but because the communities are scattered across the country you won't get an area like Gypsy Birmingham or Traveller Norwich or anything like that which you do with other ethnic minority groups particularly so uh, it is very hidden it's very scattered but many won't reveal ethnicity because of fear of current prejudice often people will think oh the community is people who are on the side of the road they're living on caravan accommodation and they're living on green fields or little private land etc or on uh, um, sites that a local authority run but actually the reality is I think there's 25,000 um, gypsy travellers who are on the side of the road in other words that these are the people that have nowhere authorised in which to encamp so there's a massive national shortage in the country uh, but most of the people from the communities are actually living in bricks and mortar. I think most people who've um, worked in healthcare will appreciate that there's some challenges for um, the community around not having a fixed abode, but I'm sure that's not where the, the challenges end. So can you just give us maybe a bit of an insight into what some of the other issues are that people from the community might face in addition to not having a fixed abode? Okay, well, um, yes, Obviously, there is a massive issue around people who are not who can't register uh, for not having a fixed address. However, um, any research that's been done in the past, particularly um, Parry et al., I believe, 
showed that Gypsy Roma Traveller people have significantly worse uh, or lower life expectancy and health outcomes. There's lots of uh, multi-morbidities within the community, particularly the Irish traveller community. If you're in your 50s, you are seen as an elder. So mortality rates are much uh, much lower age. The the stigma that goes around with trying to access if you have low literacy. So we're looking really at the social determinants of health in many ways. So we're looking at things like, you know, where you were born, where you're from, what education you had, you know, access to discrimination that you might uh, face. And that will really have a massive impact on your longer term health outcomes, particularly if you're from a community who consider or just take on board that actually that's our lot we're used to having lots of problems at an early age that's normal so it's normalized so a lot of gypsies and travelers rate their own health as poor is a lot higher than that of the wider communities yeah and i think that's absolutely right and i think um you know there's a real stigma around health as well there's a lot of fear about actually accessing the service even if they can because a lot of people perhaps who have had issues or they're working constantly they're on a low income or they're um, you know just trying to keep the head above water uh, as of many groups of people they haven't got time to find out if they're ill and one of the things that goes around the community is this sense of fatalism if I do go to see the doctor he's only going to give me bad news and often that will be the case in the community because people will not access the services that perhaps someone from a much higher socio and economic group would um, and so the news is bad so I mean I know that in the Irish traveller community I think the percentage uh, for men dying uh, at disproportionately higher amounts is it's um 30% of Irish travellers don't live beyond 60. Yeah, which is quite staggering. So there's some really significant um, health issues um, for the community, but also some wider socioeconomic, the wider determinants of health to take into the picture as well. So you've painted a really clear picture of, of some of the challenges uh, around this. So what the Secret Shopper was is um, a staff from FFT um, called up 50 GPs to see... Um, and posed as um, a traveller with no fixed address or ID to see if she's able to register at the GP. And um, 24 out of the 50 practices said that she was unable to register at the GP because she had either no fixed address or um, no ID. And although individual practices may take that stance, am I right in saying that the the national guidance is that they have to accept individuals with no fixed address? Absolutely. It's so through the going, point of access. So they're going it. against Completely national against guidance. national guidance and okay. the constitution as well. And um, uh, it, it, it's very interesting when you sort of like unpack the information. We just touched on 50 uh, across England. And I think, you know, some of the... Some of the GP practices were significantly more likely to refuse to register the mystery shopper in areas where there are large gypsy and traveller populations uh, compared to where there are not as well, which came up as an interesting point. And I think that goes back to discrimination again. And uh, obviously, gypsy and traveller communities 
historically have really had issues registering and just being accepted with the wider community anyway, uh, very marginalised to the side of the road. I remember doing um, a report and research about 10 years ago and I was quite astonished to find out that some gypsies and travellers have paid for um, GP services. They've gone privately to actually access um, any primary care and, you know, people in that case were also using A&E services because they felt they weren't going to be turned away. I think that's a real problem. I mean, people were turned away because of their surname from um, registering at surgeries. And that's, I'd love to say that it's really unusual, but unfortunately it's one of the things that come up time and time again nationally through our advice line that people are being turned away to register. I know that you've been doing some really great work in Sussex to bridge that gap um, between um, the gypsy and traveller community and the services that they're entitled to. Tell me, tell me a bit more about that. We developed a help card with community members, um, which was developed with money from the Brighton Hove CCG. And it was just a very discreet card wallet which sort of said I need extra help and if people were going to try to register on the back of the card you could turn it over and you could tick boxes i.e. I need help form filling, I need help with understanding I'd like to see a a doctor or a healthcare professional of my own gender and it's proved really successful and one of the reasons why is because when we talked with the community and got their ideas one of the things that was very important to them uh, or for them is the cards are actually developed with a logo which is familiar to them which is the logo that we use at Friends, Families and Travellers which is like a wheel so it's recognisable to the communities and also the other side of the logo was a NHS logo and that gave people permission to use it. So that's a really nice example of uh, a particular issue um, that's actually been solved by joint working um, between the community organisation um, and the NHS. I think we've moved away as a society from talking about hard to reach groups, acknowledging that often it's the statutory services that are harder to harder to reach. Um, we know that sort of involving people in communities is really effective. Um, it can also be quite challenging. Um, and sometimes with um, uh, ethnic or minority groups, that can be even harder. So what sort of things have you found have been particularly helpful in supporting people within your community to get involved in these kind of projects? And how have you gone about them differently to perhaps the NHS might be used to doing community involvement projects? I mean, we very much work on a assertive outreach needs basis. So um, this helps build up um, trust within the communities and ourselves as a organisation. And through that trust, um, for example, we could would go out and do casework on a needs basis. And then it's the credibility to almost go to members of the community and get them involved in different topics in regards to health and could really ask the community through focus groups and questionnaires um, how, how they feel um, health services could improve uh, uh, to offer recommendations on how themselves would find it easier to access services or how they think a service could be improved. Um, so that's, that's definitely a really, really good way that we've been engaging and trying to get more out there. 
I think within assertive outreach as well, as Samson said, you go on a needs basis. So when you go out to see somebody, it means going out to them rather than expecting them to walk through the door to you. And particularly when you are going out on assertive outreach, you might be wanting to know this burning question about, you know, how do you access a dentist? Or, But initially, people will come from the need that they have at that moment. And I think when the needs basis, it could be they need support filling in a benefits form or they need support to um, get into the local school or around evictions etc particularly if they're on the side of the road and once you've proved you're going to stick around and and work with them then that's when people are much more open to talk about their health and actually you know people will open up quite well about their health and their social care needs and I think uh, particularly um, with gypsies and travellers you know, they've got, they've got an awful lot to say about what's affecting them. I mean, health is everybody's business and um, there is a real interest there. But because traditionally um, they've had a lot of historical issues, possibly, then they sometimes believe the service isn't for them. Yeah. And as these services are developing and we talked about access in terms of a very traditional sense of kind of, you know, the physical buildings of, of GP surgeries or hospitals, the NHS is is innovating quite a lot at the moment and talking about things like digital, which is being branded as a whole new way to address some of the broader access issues. But I'm wondering what things like digital innovations might mean for people from the gypsy and traveller community. I mean, it's quite interesting. Um, well, the young people in a lot of the travel communities are now using a lot of different social media platforms um, and uh, doing a lot of gaming and, and, and kind of interacting as a community online. So in in theory, starting at that younger age, um, it, it could work in generations to come. But I mean, at the moment, um, a lot of gypsum travellers would struggle to use online consultation tools. I think one of the issues that came up time and time again um, when looking at digital platforms was that um, a lot of people only have smartphones or they'll have a phone. They won't actually have a PC or a unit in their home. Now, that's if they're in bricks and mortar and if they're in trailer pertinent accommodation. And the issue with that is, number one, the data cost. But number two, if they are going to access Wi-Fi data in that respect, they can only get that when they access public areas. And that means that there is no safety in accessing at all. So therefore, I think one of the recommended uh, recommendations that uh, Samson put forward was... was uh, the, the NHS England... Um could negotiate with mobile phone providers, so the NHS website and the online consultation tools, uh, whatever platforms they decide to go on, um, can be accessed for no cost for people with no internet connection at all. That's a fantastic idea, because you often think about Wi-Fi being completely ubiquitous, and it is, but not always in a setting where we'd feel comfortable talking about private healthcare issues or even sending personal data across those connections. And I think another thing that came out in one of the um, engagement uh, sessions that Samson uh, went forward with was a lot of people uh, for example within our casework community at Friends, Families and Travellers 47% of our client group are either have low literacy or no literacy. So again, it would be asking somebody else to perform that for them. Being able to access online information about themselves would take someone else who is trusting to actually input that. Mm. So you've got one step away from that confidentiality again, which is a massive problem within the community. Okay. 
So I think, you know, there has to be other ways of looking at digital as well. Mm. And I mean, within the community itself, when we do casework, a lot of our clients and a lot of the travellers and communities we work with use um, different platforms like WhatsApp, where people will give voice clips and then they'll contact uh, me by a voice clip and then they'll send a photograph of a letter, for example, and that way we can communicate. But straightforward communication with high literacy is is often an issue. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, also, there was a, an, another a recommendation which a lot of the community were really eager for their online tool to have a audio like responsive. As you, you talk about, um, mm-hmm. you get a lot of clients talk uh, contacting over WhatsApp voice clips, and that was a really big thing um, that they uh, that the community would like to a feature in the online consultation to have mm-hmm. the tools to have um, very if they're able to give symptoms for example over uh, voice rather than typing it in I think that was a really big one that's yeah. a really good example of actually using a technology that we've already got it's not necessarily a new platform it's just using the technology we already have in a slightly different way and a, and a solution that's come kind of from the community absolutely so one of the things that, that we find with all forms of kind of um, within the, this large umbrella of, of patient and public partnership is that when we're asking um, individuals from communities, whether that's condition-specific groups or um, communities like this, is that actually, you know, there's a certain amount of kind of knowledge, skills and confidence that we need to have to be able to kind of understand some of the language of the of the system, of the way commissioners work and, and the NHS is established. So there's quite a lot of different um, kind of training programmes for different groups of kind of, whether they're called patient leaders or citizen leaders and things like that. So it'd be really interesting to hear about some of the work you've done around kind of supporting and developing some of your kind of peer support within younger people within the community to upskill them to, to take on some of these leadership roles. Um, through doing different um consultations and through different focus groups and working with traveler communities we found at fft found that peer advice is a very effective um for example there was a lot of myths surrounding sunbeds that they could actually be good for your skin and that was kind of driven in the community and it, it kind of got word went round that okay it's it's so it's fine to have a sunbed it's good for my psoriasis or it's good for my skin and, and it's healthy i get a nice healthy tan i look healthy from it um, so we kind of seen how effective peer advice is and kind of used, I would say, like a health through stealth method. And it's kind of like we've kind of turned it around to use that peer advice and um, build up health, uh, young health champions in the community through our um, qualification that we've just designed with RSPH and introduced young health champions into the community who are now able to give peer advice to their peers about different health messages, uh, to deliver different health messages, um, to have the confidence to signpost um, members of the community to the relevant health services. And it, it's just been really effective. Um, a good example is um, using naturalistic uh, observation. So some of our support workers have gone on to um, site previously and we've and noticed that a lot of young people may have been drinking a lot of Red Bull. Um, since we've kind of introduced health champions into the community, um, we, we, we seldom see that now. It's more water bottles and it's kind of a fashion with having different water bottle flasks and stuff. And it's, it's been, you know, everyone's kind of taking, uh, everyone's kind of using that. That's, Sorry, really, that's really good to hear. So I think for often... Um, I'm sure for lots of people's experience, there's massive outcomes for the community in terms of those peer champions um, 
peer support youth leaders. What sort of benefits have you noted, noticed for those individuals who have been trained up on this programme? Because if they're people who perhaps maybe haven't followed through the normal formal education system, is this giving them the opportunity for kind of employment and confidence in a, in a slightly alternative way? Absolutely. We've been um, rolling this out to adults for several years now and uh, adults who have got the RSPH through the community, many of them, it's their first qualification ever. They had, were never comfortable in an educational setting because of historically issues and we do know that gypsies and travellers have had an awful lot of problems too actually uh, for the retention levels in school. Um, So many adults came in and we we developed a really small group approach and it was very interactive, it was was low literacy so the examination at the end is uh, multiple choice but it was it's distilling confidence in people and once they'd passed that examination the difference you see in and, and what people have achieved I mean we've had people going into employment on the back of the qualification we've had many more volunteers we've also got people who have put it down to get more training um, our own we have a community member who actually started volunteering with us who took the qualification who went on to now be a full-time member of staff with us um, Samson himself is a community member as well from the traveler community and he's got the qualifications and now he teaches it Um, and it's just made a huge difference people are given permission to support and intervene and looking at the longer term impacts it's been absolutely amazing and it really really works people do change their um, behaviours and they do recognise it a lot of the time it's just messages that may have been missed because public health messages are targeted usually at people in schools and in certain areas and many gypsies and travellers will not have those messages messages directed to them and I think Samson's recently done uh, a little bit of a research with the community about what people understood of um, public health messages from NHS England etc. Yeah um, yeah the, it was it was quite shocking um, I think it a majority of I think it was around 80 percent um, of, of people who he spoke to um, don't quote me exactly on that because it was very high mm-hmm. and it was um, didn't feel that messages coming from the NHS were um, aimed at them or they didn't feel that they applied to them at all um, but then every single person that we spoke to said they felt if the message was co-designed or if it came from a traveller then it would be the health message would be in air better. So what's fantastic to hear is those messages are there's, they're aware of that but also you're investing in the solution which is training up people to to have the knowledge confidence and skills to work both within their own community but also cross some of those bridges within organizations as well Absolutely. so thinking and i think what what's really important to say is like at fft we've always used uh, most of our outreach staff particularly and other staff within 50 percent of the staff are from the community okay. so that was one of the big things that can break through uh with the boundaries often you know health services will come to us and say how can we get engagement into the community and that's something we say like train up someone from the community to help you deliver these messages go out as a health trainer and if you can't do that at least get some very strong cultural awareness training and understanding of the community you told me a lovely anecdote earlier about maternity care so how in sussex you've been able to um, successfully raise that cultural awareness to engage and support the community 
Okay, yes, many, uh, lots of women, uh, if there's been a service that is trusted and if a service is, is welcoming and non-judgmental, then women find about out about it and men do within the community. And that's a great example of that is the uh, maternity services in Brighton, for example. And I know women come from all over the country to book in to have their maternity care in Brighton because there is a traveller midwife there and um, and because it's it's got a great reputation. So people feel that they're not being judged immediately and it's the same with um, health visitor services as well there's a specialist health visitor in Brighton who's traveller health visitor and again they're not going to be asking silly questions that people for who've been living on you know in caravans for like how many centuries and ask questions like oh where do you where do you all sleep or um, where where do you get your water from so someone that's already culturally aware and non-judgmental is likely to be welcomed in and they're going to be trusted and I think so there's pockets of good practice around the country Cambridge is another area where you have a fantastic um, community nurse there who's really uh, who's really trusted but word soon gets around about uh, a good service obviously what, what you've done is really good and impressive sort of suite of suite of work so what would be your kind of your general advice to either sort of you know a clinician who who sees somebody um, from the community and clinic um, or somebody who's in perhaps more of a, a system role able to influence this because you talked a lot about kind of trust and, and working with the community but I'm wondering what other things you know sort of simple advice you might give people well simple advice is if you are getting people into your waiting room just making it so it is traveller friendly or gypsy traveller friendly like in a magazine like the Traveller's Times on the table there's lots of women's own etc etc a Traveller's Time magazine is recognisable by the gypsy and traveller community just to have that there people will feel more trusting in the, in the in, in the practice itself and also I think you know there are we, we have an e-learning package as well which is available uh, from our website and it's really good for people who are from the healthcare professionals to actually look at it and see some of the issues that come up that we hear time and time again from surgeries as Samson mentioned earlier around you know sometimes a lady might not have been able to access a doctor for eight years she suddenly comes into a surgery with eight children and it's almost like there's a fear and actually if you look behind some of the cultural reasons behind that and the fact that you know historically we've not been able to access anything since the last time they had a child you know it actually puts those things to bed and people can work much better and communicate better. Anything from your perspective that you think, you know, a, a clinician or someone within the NHS could do that would really help make a difference? I think um, what we do at the moment, Michelle does a lot of this at the moment, she, it's actually we have um, doctors in training come at FFT to kind of shadow what outreach workers do and they kind of come into, they go onto different traveller sites with an outreach worker at FFT and it kind of gives them the knowledge and the need and lets them see firsthand different needs of the traveller community in like a natural environment as well um, for doctors a lot of and I, I know um, the last uh, doctor in training that came they they had no idea of some of the um, health inequalities that gypsy travellers faced and they, they were they were shocked to find out and you know they were, they were promising that they, they, it wouldn't happen when they were doctors and yeah I think stuff like that to, so learning so even bringing it into um, education as well yeah. I think it's, it's it could be it could be a way to, to start to break barriers down. Okay. It's been really interesting and uplifting to hear some of the solutions and your approaches to co-production um, around this whole agenda. So, so thank you so much. If anyone's listening and kind of wondering where to go next, what would your recommendations be to them about where to go to find out more to, to take this forwards? Um, well, you can go onto our website, which is... Uh, 
uh, friends, families and travellers. Um, or you could get in touch with a local grassroots uh, gypsy traveller organisation and ask for support there. Um, or there's there's quite a lot of information out on the uh, on the internet that you could look at these days. But of course, you can contact um, anybody that's producing good practice, which you can find on the website. You can find us on Twitter at Gypsy Traveller. Um, Friends, Families and Travellers on Facebook and Friends, Families and Travellers also on YouTube. So you've been listening to Samson Rattigan and Michelle Gavin from Friends, Family and Travellers. That's it for this podcast, but keep your ear out for more of these patient, public and partnership interviews. And if you've not heard of our other ones, then check them out on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, subscribe if you haven't already. I'm Anya Diong, patient editor for the British Medical Journal. Thank you very much for listening.